Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. I'm your host, Chessie Greenham, and today we are speaking to Sarah Eaton about her clinical review on neonatal sepsis. Sarah is a lecturer at the University of Arizona and an American diplomat in theory of genealogy. Sarah has also recently become a diplomat of the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. So Sarah, I thought a good place to start would be to maybe um, discuss the definition of neonatal sepsis. Sure. So we kind of have to break it down into the two pieces, neonatal, which means young animal, and in foals we consider neonates anything under about 30 days. And then sepsis in general just means that dysregulated host systemic inflammatory response to infection. And basically the immune system is either under or overreacting to some type of infection. That summarizes it nicely. Um, And you go through in your kind of uh, introduction the varying immune system strategies that the foals have and the approaches from the body and you touch on colostrum consumption and we know that that is high to be highly significant in neonatal foals but what is it about the colostrum that makes it so important to the foal and its immune system? So colostrum is more than just calories for these kiddos. It also contains key immune factors that help protect the foal for the first one to two months of life because as we know due to their placentation they receive no antibodies transplacentally. So while the foal is young and its own immune system is starting to mature, the antibodies from the colostrum can act as that first acquired immune system. They also help to opsonize a foal's neutrophil, so they help make the foal's own neutrophils more effective against recognizing, binding, and initiating that intracellular cascade that we need to release pro-inflammatory cytokines. And you've mentioned there that the foal's immune system takes time to develop. At what ages do we start to see differencing developments in immunity and how is the immune system working during these different stages? So the foals, as we know, just like adult horses and most animals, have two main components to their immune system, the acquired immune system and the innate immune system. So the acquired immune system in foals, they start being able to respond at about nine weeks of age with immunoglobulin A or IgA, but it's not until about four months of age that we see adult responses in some of the other immunoglobulins. It's important to remember, though, that the acquired immune response is acquired because animals have to see whatever they need to respond to. So if these animals haven't seen them out in the world, it may take them years to be fully responsive to different things. And that's why vaccines are so important. You know, we're, we're exposing these animals earlier on in life to pathogens they might find later in life and promoting that acquired immune response. The innate immune response is a little bit different in that full start at about three months of age, but it does take about a year for them to be fully protected with their immune system. And what is the definition of the systemic inflammatory response syndrome, otherwise known as SIRS? So it's been mainly defined in the human uh, medical practice, and it's defined in general as an exaggerated defense response of the body to a noxious stressor. So basically, it's an uncontrolled inflammatory response. And as I said earlier, it can be excessive or it can be inadequate in either direction. And how can we apply this definition to diagnosing cases of SIRS when we're out in practice? So we know, again, SIRS is that uncontrolled inflammatory response. And in the vet world, this has been correlated to or characterized by certain specific factors. And for us to diagnose SIRS, we need to have at least three of these six factors. So either alterations in temperature, so either fever or hypothermia, tachycardia, 
take apnea, changes in the white blood cells, so either leukocytosis or leukopenia, hyperlactatemia, and hypoglycemia. And it's really important to note that some of these, such as the body temperature the white, and the white blood cell count, can be either high or low. And it really depends on the foal's environment and how the foal is responding, as in what stage of the infection are they in. Is it early in infection before the, before the white blood cell count has been able to rise, or is it late in the infection where we may see, may see some really high white blood cell counts, you know, into 20,000, 30,000? Okay. And what are the most common causes of sepsis that we see in neonatal foals? So historically, the main causes of sepsis in foals have been gram-negative infections. So E. coli, Klebsiella pneumoniae, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Salmonella, Enterobacter, or Actinobacillus. But recently, probably in the last 10 years of publications, we're starting to see an increase in gram-positive infections. So we're actually seeing about the same numbers of gram-positive and gram-negative infections when we look at some of the retrospective studies. On the gram-positive side, we tend to see a lot of the environmental organisms, streptococcus, enterococcus, or staphylococcus that are present on the normal skin of the mare or the foal. That's interesting that you mentioned that change from kind of historically and kind of current differences to the types of bacteria that we're seeing causing these. Do you know if there's been any kind of noted differences in how the cases are presenting due to those factors? No, the the thing that we're seeing with these guys is the main or the biggest difference it makes is choosing that correct antibiotic before we have our culture results. So these kiddos, a lot of times we cannot wait 48, 72 hours for those culture results to start treatment. So, you know, we used to be able to mainly target treatment and gram-negative bacteria. Now it's becoming a lot more common to do broad-spectrum antibiotics and then hopefully be able to stop one of those medications if we culture either a gram-positive or a gram-negative infection. But there are some foals that culture a mixed infection, and that's when we oftentimes have to keep them on both antibiotics. That's interesting that you bring up the antibiotics discussion because I guess with antibiotic stewardship becoming the kind of big hot topic of the moment um foals creates an interesting problem where like you say we're already trying to put them on antibiotics without necessarily having those culture results back and um, what would be your kind of go-to starting line in these cases before you've got those culture results kind of the standard uh, antibiotic protocol that we use again is a broad spectrum so something like an ampicillin or it used to be a penicillin I don't know, depending on the location, some places it's going on and off the market. And then an aminoglycoside, so usually amicacin in these foals. Now, that being said, we have to be careful with their renal function. So if you have a really dehydrated foal, you have to walk that fine line between providing antibiotic coverage versus damaging the kidneys further. My goal always when I'm treating these kiddos is um, to wait, you know, start them on that. And once I get my culture results back, hopefully be able to tailor it a little bit more specifically. Obviously, if it's going to take five days, you don't want to wait five days to start treating your foal. There are some people that will add in metronidazole as well, you know, um, if you suspect an anaerobic infection. But those are much less likely to happen versus just general gram-positive or gram-negative aerobic infections. That's interesting. Are these cases things that you'll be happy treating out on farms or would you be encouraging them into hospital settings? A lot of it really depends on how sick the foal is. So, you know, if you have a, and how good the team is. So if you have a team on farm that can recognize these kiddos or these foals when they're just starting to get sick, you know, maybe they're not nursing as vigorously or they're not getting up as 
often or they're a little bit less interactive with either the mayor or the farm staff. We may be able to treat them quickly on farm before they become systemically ill and develop all the way into SIRS. But if we have a foal that is down and out, you know, needs supportive care, such as lots of intravenous fluids or a CRI, you know, respiratory support, physical support to keep them comfortable, that's not really something you can manage on farm. So a lot of the success rate, at least in my hands, um, is based on how quickly these foals are noticed. And, you know, unfortunately, some of the retrospective studies look at hospitalized foals because that's where you can take a nice group of 10, 20 foals, evaluate all of their results and see what the prognosticators are. But I think doing that misses some of our on-farm treatments because the on-farm babies aren't sick enough to refer into the hospital. And you've uh, mentioned in the review that um, in SIRS cases, the lamina of the hoof are one of the more commonly affected areas, um, typically in the adult horses. Have you seen this presentation in foals at all, or would it just be more the GI um, presentation that would be more common? Luckily, not to jinx myself, I haven't um, seen laminitis actively in a foal. There may be some inflammation of the foot, but they're not clinically presenting lameness or the classic sawhorse stance that we see. But I do see changes in the coronary band of the foal. So that coronary band may either become hyperemic or may become dusky, so kind of that purplish color. And that tells me that there are some changes in the blood flow to the foot that may be secondary to the sepsis. That's really interesting to note and definitely something that I probably don't look for enough um, in foals, like you say, I think you never really hear of a foal having laminitis, so you just overlook that area. Um, right. but definitely something I'll change going forwards. Um, you mentioned a prevalence of 57% for gastric ulcers in foals, and that seems quite high. Um, and you then discussed the difference in causes between gastric ulceration in adults and foals. Would your treatment preferences also differ between these two groups? Yes, I think, um, you know, when a lot of the omeprazole products first came out, we were diagnosing everything that looked a little wrong with gastric ulcers, and we may have clinically found them on grass steroscopy, and that kind of migrated into anything that acted a little bit wrong or that might be stressed, we were going to go ahead and treat it with an omeprazole-type product to try and prevent these gastric ulcers from forming. Um, in foals, I think we've kind of stepped back a little bit from that because, yes, we're diagnosing them in 57% of foals, but that means over 40% of the foals that are sick do not have gastric ulcers. You know, and these kiddos can be pretty uncomfortable. They may not be nursing. They may have diarrhea. They may be pretty down and out, but we don't actually see the gastric ulcers like we see in adult horses where it seems like you change the weather one day and they develop gastric ulcers or you put them on a trailer and they develop gastric ulcers. And again, kind of similar to um, treatment of sick foals, we may not be scoping every single foal that we see. You know, maybe he's acting a little bit wrong. Let's treat him with this or let's manage him that way and not actually scoping him to get a full idea of how many gastric ulcers or what percentage of gastric ulcers we're seeing in these slightly sick foals versus these extremely sick foals in hospitals. And what is the most common route for exposure to these pathogens for the, the foals and how are they entering the body? There's really two main routes in these foals. So foals, when they're first born, they have what's called an open gut. So the enterocytes in their GI tract don't have tight, tight seals between them. So anything that they ingest can actually migrate between those enterocytes and get into the bloodstream. And that's how our immunoglobulins from colostrum get into the bloodstream. And that's something we want. But whatever the foal ingests is going to get into that bloodstream. So if you have a foal that maybe is a little bit slower to get up, you know, he or she maybe 
plants their face into the ground a few times time to get up or runs into the wall a few times or even licks mom's legs or underbelly before they get to the udder, they're ingesting all of the bacteria that's present there. So it's really important to have clean foaling environments. And that includes the mare herself. You know, if she's muddy, we want to get that mud off of her before she foals. And then the other route of infection is through the umbilicus. So the umbilical artery and the umbilical veins can cause or can allow bacteria to enter just because it's an open, basically bleeding wound for at least a few hours after birth and bacteria can translocate through that. And would you have therefore kind of the ultrasound scanning of the umbilicus as a a mainstay part of your diagnostic workup in these cases as well? Yes. I mean, if I'm looking for secondary sites or primary sites in foals that are already sick, the places I'm going to look, I'm going to look at the GI tract, I'm going to look at the umbilicus, and I'm going to look at the lungs in easy to ultrasound areas. Other things that I'm going to look at are going to be the joints or the physes because those are kind of all areas where bacteria tend to seed and can cause problem. And again, it can be primary or secondary. So we can have a systemic sepsis that seeds into the umbilicus or into the physis, or we could have something like an omphalophlebitis or an inflammation or infection of the belly button that again then gets into the bloodstream and causes systemic problems. And I guess the GI tract could be kind of consequence or cause in terms of a route, like you say, with the open gut, a route of entry for the bacteria. Is there anything that you can discern the two mechanisms from? So it would be difficult to differentiate the two unless you had a very big, obvious other area that then became the GI tract, because we know some of these foals that have systemic inflammation or even SIRS, they have changes in the blood flow that goes to the GI tract. So there's some damage to these enterocytes or some of these villi within the gastrointestinal tract because they just don't get good blood perfusion. So the question is always, did they become damaged from whatever pathogens were in the GI tract and allowed leakage? Or were there changes in the blood flow due to that systemic inflammation that then allowed leakage secondary to that? And blood culture is talked about as being gold standard diagnostic uh, testing, but it appears that could be multiple diagnostic approaches to getting a positive diagnosis on these cases. What, What do you do? Yes. So the blood culture is standard, but even in that case, we only get a positive culture about 50% of the time. And interestingly, they did studies in human children and showed that increased volumes of blood had more positive results. So showed a better response rate, but they were doing very small amounts. So I think they were comparing something like 0.3 cc's you know, with one cc. So minuscule amounts, because obviously human babies are much smaller, whereas foals, you could easily get three, five, 10 cc's worth of blood to get hopefully a better response. So carrying that information over, I try to get a larger volume of blood if I can to provide for culture. If that's not an option or if I have another area that's very obviously inflamed, I'll try to get a sample directly from that spot. You know, if I have an umbilicus that has an abscess or I have a a chest that's full of purulent material, that would be a good route to maybe get a more positive result, you know, to have a a better response to the sampling that we're taking. I do try to get my owners, if I have a sick foal, to at least let me take the blood culture sample. We don't have to submit it later on. You know, if they say, hey, this foal responded really well to treatment for 24 hours, this is not in my budget to do, we can always toss it. But once I start antibiotics, my success rate of a blood culture being positive is much lower. I will say another big part of what I like to do when I'm evaluating these foals is you need to get their history. You know, it's a lot of management questions. So 
did these foals change in their nursing level? Have they been more up and down? A lot of that information will tell you kind of whether or not to go down the sepsis route or not. And you might catch them really early rather than really late. And are the sepsis scores um, then something that you could maybe use while awaiting culture results to kind of give more of an indication as to whether you think that foal has a septic diagnosis? You can. Some of the sepsis scores, they've unfortunately all been created for hospitalized foals. So they're doing lots of diagnostic work. You know, they're doing a, a white count and a lactate level, which are great and very useful information. But sometimes you can't get those both on the farm unless you have equipment that you can cart around. So you can use it kind of as a general guideline to give you that information. A lot of these foals, it's putting all the different pieces together. So you're putting your history, your physical exam you know, how the foal is acting, probably their IgG level. If it's really low, that's a bigger concern for me than any other testing you might find. You know, if you find a swollen umbilicus, if the foal has been coughing, if you have abnormal lung sounds, that can all help you kind of lean towards the sepsis area. Because realistically with these foals, even if they have pneumonia, they're probably also septic. Or even if they have an infected belly button, they're probably also septic because it's not like the bacteria stay in that one part of the body. They tend to spread throughout the bloodstream. And are there any kind of prognostic indicators that we can use at the point of presentation of these foals? There have been a few studies on prognostic indications. The main things they look at are um, that have been shown to be effective are lactate and serum amyloid A on serial blood work. So if you get a single level, that's not as helpful as if you do one every day or every 48 hours type of a thing to try and see is that full improving or not. And in your experience, what is the biggest limiting factor to the success of these cases? Unfortunately, a lot of times the biggest limiting factor is finance. Um, not because owners don't care, but because these foals, as I tell my owners, can get pretty expensive pretty quickly. Unfortunately, you know, you if you have especially a really sick foal, you're going to be doing a lot of diagnostic testing. You're going to be doing very intensive treatment. It takes a lot of personnel time. You know, you can't unfortunately put this horse in a stall, hang it IV fluids and, you know, check on it four to six times a day. A lot of these foals that are unable to rise, they need somebody sitting with them 24-7. They need to be in a NICU type situation because they need the personnel to handle that. And unfortunately, these sicker foals do tend to have, in general, poor prognoses. And, you know, the question is always, is that due to time? Is it due to finances? Is it due to how sick the foal was coming in? It's hard to separate all those out. But it is something that I usually discuss pretty early on with the owners um, so that we line up our treatment goals and our financial budgets so that we can keep everybody hopefully as happy as possible and get the best results within certain parameters. I guess it's quite a multifactorial uh, disease really, isn't it? With all the different organ systems that can be affected. Yes, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Are there any other factors that would decrease the odds for survival in these cases? A big factor for me is um, how early the owners or the farm managers notice this information or notice the, the, the sick foal. Again, if they notice the foal when it just changes a little bit versus noticing the foal when it's a little limp dish rag lying in the corner of the stall, the, the level of care that it may need to get back to a normal status could be much lower. It's not always a guarantee, but if I'm starting way, way behind, it's going to take a lot more effort to get that foal better. So I try to get owners of foals to watch them frequently, you know, especially in the first week of life. This is not something that I like to have owners. You know, we do our 24-hour new baby check 
and then they turn it out and don't see it for another week. You know, realistically, I'd love for them to check it at least twice a day, if not more often. And that includes not just making sure Mare and Full are both in the same area, but you know, getting the full up, making sure it goes over and starts nursing, checking the bag on mom to make sure that she's not pouring milk or has milk standing on her back legs, checking underneath the tail of the full to make sure that everything looks good. And then I usually take their temperatures twice a day on these folds, again, just to try and catch any hyper or hypothermic folds. If it's summertime and the foal has been running around outside for the last hour, he's going to be a bit hyperthermic. But then I just like to give him like an hour and make sure that they come back down to normal. And is there any work comparing how foals who survive sepsis do later in life in terms of performance and expectations? There have been a few studies and unfortunately they're kind of conflicting and I think it illustrates the broad range of what a septic foal is. You know, if we took all the foals that never had to make it all the way to a NICU, they probably have a very different prognosis than the foals that come in and are completely recumbent and need 24-7 care. Average short-term survival rate you know, which means they survive this episode of illness is only about 50 to 60%. Long-term survival rate. And a lot of these are done in thoroughbreds or standardbreds because we can kind of have a, a finite goal for these horses. You know, if it's a pleasure horse, it might be difficult to say, did they become a trail horse or did they not become a trail horse? On the racehorse side of things, they can evaluate and look and see, did these foals make it to race? Did they make any money? Did they not make any money? So Sanchez's group showed that in thoroughbreds, they had the same likelihood to race, but earned less money if they were sick foals as neonates versus not. But Chidlow's group showed no difference. So those, again, conflicting studies. Um, a group in Australia with Radal showed that thoroughbreds and standardbreds, that a decreased percentage of the septic foals made money racing compared to their non-septic counterparts. So again, we've got lots of different factors. And I like to use some of this information just to tell horse owners what kind of the the prognoses are. And yes, most of these owners are not going to own racehorses, but they can use that information to know kind of how much they want to invest in the horse and what the odds are of this horse surviving. And I really think it's important when I have these animals in hospital that I give these owners updates every day, if not even twice a day on how these foals are doing, what's changed, whether it's good or bad, and if that changes our long-term prognosis so that they don't think, hey, we started treatment early and of course the foal is going to get better or we started treatment and the foal was down and out and they never got better, but I had promised them that they were. So it's a lot of communication with these owners so that they know where we are in the whole process. Sarah, it's been really, really interesting hearing a bit more about um, your review on neonatal sepsis. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us and thank you everybody for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e.